Good morning. Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have Trent Doherty visiting us, PhD from Rochester, professional epistemologist. He is the editor of a book published by Oxford University Press called Evidentialism and Its Discontents. And I'm going to share my screen. <clears throat> it's Evidentialism and Its Discontents, and it's about the role of evidence in defining knowledge, defining the what counts as knowledge. Trent, we are so happy that you're here. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So I, I definitely I encourage people to buy that book because um, that and the other books I've edited for OUP, I still get royalties on those. So get yours today. <laughs> <laughs> every every year I get a a royalty check from OUP and convert it. I can get it in books, pounds, or dollars. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Not Bitcoin yet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I, I'll tell a little anecdote of how I met Trent and how I knew about him at, at, the, at first. Uh, I had a friend named John Kwok, and I used to call John Johann Sebastian Kwok. <laughs> uh in fact i still call him that really but um <laughs> john used to talk about you a lot and uh said he he would say over and over again you got to meet my friend trent you got to meet my friend trent and he was uh so impressed that you had so many kids and you were able to do so many different things it seemed like you were an extrovert in philosophy which is a, a, apparently rare i guess like everybody's <laughs> like an introvert Turns out, and yes. So if you're an extrovert in philosophy, then that means that you actually like people and you care about talking to people. <laughs> I do. What a, what a concept. Yeah. And so it you makes it pretty handy for class. Yeah, that's true. I bet. And then, um, then I met you in person, uh, in the fall, it would have been late fall, 2013. I was teaching at Pepperdine. Okay. Pepperdine oh, University. Yeah. And, um, and you were uh, a guest speaker there. And uh, I brought my class, as I recall, to your lecture, I believe. And we pop helped populate your lecture. I'm almost certain that's, that's how I met you. And I remember the classroom. And then um, one of the two tenure guys there that's... Um, well, they, uh, they, I don't think they had tenure at the time, but Garrett Pendergraft. Garrett Pendergraft was there. Garrett, yeah, Garrett Pendergraft, yeah. Garrett was there. And Tomas had just arrived, I believe. Tomas yeah, was Tomas there. Regarded. He's a great and guy. Those are two Biola guys. So I knew them yeah. from Biola. And <clears throat> Garrett invited me to come to Dukes with you guys. So we went to Dukes Barefoot Bar in oh, Malibu. Yeah. And I hung out with all these rock star tenures and i was the lone adjunct and i just sat there with my water because i apparently i was the one driving uh, everybody else was designated driver. barefoot on that bar no uh actually and your wife was there your wife was there and i met her yep. and you guys were I talking about you guys were talking about doing some kind of crazy bike ride and you're going to like ride to Alaska and back tomorrow. And I was yeah. like, where do you get all this energy? Can I have some of that? So anyway, Just born um, with it. yeah, must be nice. Uh, 
So, uh, Curtis, did you have anything to share or anything to? No, I appar- uh, apparently uh, we, we we were talking earlier how we how we met. Might have been at a conference, but we're thinking maybe Facebook. Uh, reacting to some of the comments that w- witty comments that I make about students here or there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in philosophy, it's it's uh, you have to get your friends where you can. Yeah, it's, such a, it's such an ideologically small universe that if you see anybody, um, you know, not playing according to the script, you're like, oh, hey, this this is uh, this person. This person is thinking outside the actual box. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like to make those connections. Yeah. Likewise. That's awesome. Well, we're happy you're here. And so I thought I would <clears throat> throw you some deep questions that most people like i have so many people ask me how do we really know things like how do we how do we know well anyway this is like knowledge is your thing you've thought a lot about it you've written a lot about it you've edited a lot about it so i thought i would pose this question to you how do we know things well um I'll not only talk about how we know things, but how we know we know things. <laughs> Ooh, beautiful. <laughs> just, just went meta on you, huh? Mind blown. So, yeah. So I think, so as a preface though, first is, you know, the, the deepness of the question. A lot of times a question like that, I think when a student asks it, especially with that kind of intonation, what they're really asking is, um, how can you hold me accountable for that? Hmm. Right. I think that's is I think what they want. We've got this false dichotomy between knowledge and opinion. And unfortunately, Socrates is somewhat to blame for this because um, the distinction between episteme and doxa in Greek has been presented uh, by a lot of epistemologists as a very binary concept. There's either you know it or it's an opinion. And then also the way the word, you know, doxa is translated opinion. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it means today or doesn't have the same connotations as it does today. Because in his day, opinion meant something like, well, it is a respectable belief, but uh, it lacks certain um, important key properties for this really honorific status of knowledge. But, it was, but today, the word opinion connotes, you got your opinion, I got my opinion. And there's, Just there's no accountability whatsoever, right? Mm. No accountability. You can't, you can't question somebody's opinion because this is america it's a free country oh right? i see where and, so, and so i think really really the origin of that question with that intonation in those contexts is is it's a challenge to say you can't hold me accountable for defending my beliefs because we've got this binary thing and if it's mere opinion i can do whatever i want and then um they set the standards for knowledge so high that they think it's impossible because they're using the word knowledge to express something like absolute proof or something like that. Now, um, so and, my and so when when can I just ask a clarifying question, just really quick yeah, about your, opinion? Your audio is actually better when it's over here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So, um, do you believe that the word opinion now means belief? I think it is often used synonymously with belief. And we also have this, the same dichotomy that if you believe, you can believe whatever you want because it's a free country. 
And it's part of pluralism that I get to believe whatever I want and you can't force your beliefs on me. Okay. So again, I think a lot of this is just, um, is a conceptual smokescreen for wanting to not be accountable for defending one's beliefs, opinions, commitments, and ultimately actions because belief is an action guiding mental state. And so I really think that um, if we want to set this in a broader, more important context, it's not just a philosophical puzzle. It's actually, there's a sociological dimension here to how we use these words because words can be used to convey power and to express norms, whether they're psychological or social or whatever. And so, but fortunately, I think there are philosophical answers to the question that help diffuse that situation. And um, the concept of evidence is wonderfully poised to do that. And here's why. Um, so uh, my PhD is in philosophy, but my dissertation, half of my dissertation committee, including the um, chair of my dissertation um, defense committee were uh, in the linguistics department, okay? So Richard Feldman was my dissertation advisor, but your, your, the chair of your committee is a different person sometimes. And mine was in the uh, linguistics department and the chair of the linguistics department um, was, uh, was on my committee as well. Um, Trent, Trent uh, tell people the significance of having Richard Feldman as your dissertation chair. Well, um, so in 1984, I think it was, Richard Feldman and Earl Connie wrote a seminal article in philosophy called Evidentialism. And in it, they set forth the defense of a position that we'll unpack a little bit here today. But um, since that hey, time- Say the word again for people trying to- there's a lot of people probably watching that never took philosophy and they're trying to catch right. up. So evidentialism, right? Yeah. yeah evidentialism. evidentialism. Okay. Right. And so by putting the ism on it, on the term evidential, yeah. it's, it's saying evidence is at the foundations of, of, of it's the anchor concept of our overall concept of the norms of belief, the rules of belief, the ethics of belief. If you want to know, questions about, if you want answers to questions about what we ought to believe, um, then ultimately evidence is what's going to, evidential considerations are what is going to um, answer that, including the concept of knowledge. Because linguistically yes. speaking, the, the verb knows isn't really graded. It's kind of like linguistically, you either know or you don't. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but whereas, um, belief comes in there belief is a concept that lends itself more to degrees so we talk about degrees of belief or we talk about confidence intellectual confidence um and that definitely comes in degrees so i am you know here are some things i believe i believe that um uh, joe biden is the current president of the united states i'm not happy about it but i believe that it's true whether i like it or not um I believe that uh, my dog is asleep under the table right there. And Did you say I you're not happy about Joe Biden being president? Oh, no, I actually said go. I was actually saying, um, let's go, get off this podcast. <laughs> Out. I, there must have been a, a, an interruption in the signal. I was saying, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, inter I interrupted you. Must you must have misheard me. I, I, guess, I guess sometimes statements Good catch. about Joe Good Biden catch. sound like, other things so yeah, yeah wouldn't be no, the first time I, um how do we know hmm. anyway go trent, trent um 
Now, let me go back to what you said, because it was a huge thing you said. You said that knowledge is binary, basically. You either have it or you don't. Linguistically, then, it's treated that way, yeah. Okay. What about the real thing? Well, I think in the, the real thing, I think knowledge does, in a sense, come in degrees. Oh, okay. Um, early 20th century um, neo-scholastic, neo-Thomist philosopher and epistemologist Jacques Maritain wrote a book actually called The Degrees of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. And notice that even sometimes we do say things like, you know full well, or you know damn good and well. Uh Um, uh, That really adds sort of a layer to it. Now, we don't say knows more. And sometimes linguists have this very flat-footed view that like, unless you can say knows more, knowledge doesn't come in degrees. But clearly, our knowledge does come in degrees in the sense that it's a function of things that do come in degrees and we can know some things better than others we can we can just barely know some things and other things we can know full well or know damn good and well and that kind of thing um because like knowledge i said has parts or something because knowledge the, has parts exactly. and there's parts some parts some of these parts are one of them is believing right and belief comes in degrees is what you're saying in confidence right? Psychological right. So, certitude. Right. So there's, so there's, we, so, so like I was saying, I believe that Joe Biden is president. I believe that my dog is asleep under the table and I believe my name is Trent, but I don't believe these things all with the same degree of confidence. Now, even the concept of belief kind of looks binary, but again, these things are functions of other things that do come in degrees because clearly we can make a rank ordering that absolutely uncontroversial absolutely uncontroversial that I believe more firmly and on a more firm basis that my name is Trent than I do that my dog is asleep. Maybe the dog's just resting its eyes, right? But it sure as heck looks asleep and usually takes a nap this time of day after it eats. I've got lots of good evidence that the dog is asleep. Now let's assume the dog is asleep. Okay. Let's assume this. So let's assume that my belief is correct and that it's formed in the right sort of way. It's formed on the basis of the evidence that I have with respect to that target proposition that the dog is asleep. With everything, the most natural thing in the world would be to say, um, I know the dog's asleep. And assuming that um, Joe Biden actually is president of the United States, I'm always hoping that we'll discover some technicality, but you know, <laughs> assuming he really is president, it's too bad. It would have been better under the Obama administration because people actually did believe that he wasn't president for a while. Um, but but I don't I don't uh, uh, I don't certainly don't. And my name is Trent, let's say. Um, so I certainly know that my name is Trent in a way that is much more well founded than my knowledge is the dog is asleep. One is much more movable than the other. One, you could talk me out of a lot easier. One, I could more easily be wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so. This has led a lot of philosophers to to realize that knowledge, even though the concept as it's well, as it's employed linguistically, for the most part, seems binary and most people think of it as binary. It's just not. And if it's not binary, but it's treated that way, what is it that is our real anchor? What's really going on here? What determines which items of knowledge are more secure than others? What determines um, which items of knowledge are more well-founded than others. And the concept of evidence is perfectly suited to answer that question. That um, I know something when I, when, it's tr- when I believe it and, and it's true, and I believe it 
for the right kinds of reasons. Now, cashing out the right kinds of reasons is pretty tough, but nobody ever said it would be easy. And some people like Timothy Williamson have this ridiculous idea that because it's somewhat hard to um, determine those details that we're just going to give up and say that knowledge is prime, whatever that means. And we're going to start building every other concept out of knowledge instead. And that, that was, you know, very Oxfordy idea and it got really popular and 20 years on people are still banging on about this kind of naive, you know, oversimplified idea rather than doing right. the hard work okay. of getting a real concept of evidence and evidential probability. It's a big waste of time, big diversion, but okay. It's well, all hold on. Let me, away. let me, uh, let me stop you there for a sec. I think we need to define knowledge for it. So part of what I think when, when, when someone asks, how do we know things? You're, you're going to have to define knowledge at some point. So how you, you just kind of did give a, a rough sketch of the definition of knowledge. I was tracking with you, but I don't know how many other people were tracking with how fast you're speaking. Knowledge you said is, a bit. well, knowledge you said is. I get really excited about epistemology. That's good. Well, the good thing about this is they can pause it and they can go back. And they can listen to it again. Well, some of them might want to pause it and not go back. <laughs> <laughs> Knowledge, is, there said, an, is, is there an eject button on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to go into an archive and it'll be hopefully there for a long time and people can check it out for many years. So, but, you know, so there might be somebody years in the future that is listening to this and trying to track and when uh, higher education is just totally bombed out and they didn't get a good education they're trying to tr they're right. trying to go back and they're trying to four, fill in I think that happened about four years ago yeah that's right but knowledge you said our irish uh our irish archives knowledge we're the new ionian monks that's right that'd be that'd be a good name for, a, for an institute new ionia <laughs> yeah, okay yeah. i'm gonna get on i'm gonna get on my other phone and trademark that real quick there you go good i want 10 percent uh, knowledge <laughs> is defined as belief that happens to be true, right? And has evidence. Is that kind of what you're going with? So well, knowledge um, is a belief that's true. It's not just a false belief or guess. It's, a, it's, 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 well, it's a true guess maybe, but it can't be a guess because it's got guesses don't have the kind of evidential. Right. Yeah. Is so that you where you're going? Want... So, uh, well, so one one broad notion that, that that people have said. So okay, okay. So there's degrees of specificity, right? You can give definitions that that are extensionally correct, mm -hmm. that that capture all and only the things attempting to be defined, but those aren't necessarily always illuminating. So Socrates' right. example was defining human beings as featherless bipeds. Now he didn't. He'd never been to Australia, so at the time, the phrase featherless biped captured all and only humans but it didn't really say anything about the essence of what it is to be human so so there's there are merely funk and then there, there are definitions that define put a fence around the concept and that's somewhat helpful and then there are there are definitions that are can be more or less informative about the thing being defined and the best definition says aristotle is one that captures the essence of the thing. So he defines a human being as a rational animal. And that since rationality is at the core of our essence, that's the best definition you can give 
of a human being much better than featherless biped, even though both phrases are extensionally correct. They, they name all and only the same things. So I think when we talk about the definition, we're already off a little bit to the wrong foot. We want to talk about ways of capturing the idea and definitions that there might be a 40,000 uh, foot definition and we can, we can zoom in after that. I think the best place to start is that knowledge is non-accidental true belief. Okay. Non-accidental true belief. Non and then there are. Say it one more time. for Non-accidental true belief. So you you believe it and you're, and, and you're right. Um, but it's, and it's no accident that you're right. Like you said, why, it wasn't a guess. Why is knowledge not false? Well, look, um, I don't really care about this to be quite honest. People, we, we certainly we, linguistically sometimes will say, you, you know, a million headlines. Everything you knew about X turns out to be false, right? Everything you knew about, um, uh, well, I, I, my, everything you knew about eggs turns out to be false. But you, you didn't really know bad. it, right? You didn't know right, it? Right, right, right. Okay. Well, you, I, look, you can say that or, or you can say, okay, well, sometimes knowledge is false. I, I, me, didn't, I did not know that Santa Claus existed is what you're saying. Well, that's my preferred way of going. Like people say, okay. another thing people often say is, well, everybody used to know the earth was flat. And <sighs> one way to go is to say, I hate that. I hate that. Okay. Well, they, they thought they knew that and they had really good evidence that they knew it because remember we talked about there's knowledge about knowledge too. And what it, any self-aware person thinking about, the um, uh, shape of the earth it, uh, is going to um, think, well, gosh, I've got, they're going to know what their reasons are. And they're going to say, um, uh, well, yeah, here are my reasons for thinking the earth is flat. So not only do I know, I now know, do I know that I know? So they had good reasons, let's say, for thinking the earth was flat. And that's a good way of explaining what sounds right about the phrase what would be a good what would be a good reason to think the earth is flat well it sure as hell looks flat i well, mean I'm if from you, colorado if so a... i've never thought that the, the rocky mountains were flat <laughs> um it certainly uh looks flat in various places and and yes. it may not look flat in your immediate even in colorado there are parts of cal you know eastern colorado looks flat um, Lyman, Lyman looks flat. Um, and, and at any rate, a flat surface can have, you know, variations. You know, okay, the earth itself is flat and then it just has areas that are not flat. But the yeah. overall shape of Colorado looks flat. You stand up on a mountain, actually on a 14er, you can kind of see the curvature of the earth. But again, most people, uh, most ancient people didn't have a view of the earth from 14,000 feet. Um, and most people, uh, the most, uh, area of the earth they would ever have seen would have been out to sea. And, and, it, and to a certain extent, the, the horizon might look, but still it's perfectly reasonable for a person of that era to say, yeah, yeah, yes, there's flat. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, perception. You're just looking around and you trust your eyes. Yeah. Your eyes seem to be, okay. It's uh, the I, same reason we believe 90% of everything else we believe because we look around and it looks that way. Yeah, and we yeah. and we've got no good defeater. We got no reason to not believe it. Now, sometimes if I look and I see my dog has a the uh, is pink and has the head of an elephant, I think, 
and I, and I, and I know I'm on a new medication. Yeah. Um, that's good. I, I think cause I'm bipolar and I take medication for bipolar and I, and so, suppose my psychiatrist recently switched my meds and, um, and I look at the dog and I'm like, oh, the dog is pink and has a, has a, has a, has a, a trunk. I think, okay, <laughs> well, it, it seems like it looks that way to me, but I ha- also have good reason to think that that's an unreliable perception. But I think that there was certainly a time when people, there's all sorts of things that are false and even um, obviously false on current evidence that at one state of the evidence prior really looked true. And therefore they had every Mm -hmm. right to believe them. And even that's pretty common, right? That, that happens all the time. Yeah. Very common. Can uh, perception Um, like sensory perception, eyes, ears, uh, can that ever count as good knowledge for a good evidence for knowledge? I think it's always good evidence for knowledge in the absence of a defeater. A defeater is just a name for a defeater is just a fancy name for some other piece of evidence, some other consideration that bears negatively on another part of our evidence. Mm-hmm. So I've got the evidence of the senses, but then I might have some knowledge of some other, I might be aware of some other fact or information or situation that, that goes against that and takes that out of the picture or neutralizes that. Like I said, with the, with the um, drug example. And there are, other, there are all sorts of reasons why, why, why we might be um, uh, led to believe something in a very reasonable way on the basis of our current evidence, even though our evidence is misleading. Um, is, is sensory evidence, is that required to have knowledge? Well, no, because I mean, I might be blind and have all kinds of knowledge. There's a, for each type of proposition, there's an appropriate range of evidence relevant to that type of proposition. That's a huge because, thing right there. That's huge. Say that again. That for each type of proposition, there's a range of evidence, a type of evidence that is likewise appropriate for evaluating that proposition. We don't evaluate, you know, the question of, we don't evaluate when we're thinking about which principles of morality are correct. We, we don't just, you know, there's nowhere we can look, you know, this is, it's not the right kind of evidence for that type of proposition. But likewise, as um, Francis give an Bacon example. Used, well, yeah, I just did moral principles. So, so one of the things I, I want mean, to an know example is, of a moral belief. Oh, um, yeah, that abortion is is uh, morally reprehensible. So you don't know about um, that by looking. I can get some evidence for it by looking, but I, I can I get understand what it is and things like that. It might depend yeah. on some looking. But that okay. particular application is going to be the concept of what abortion is and the concept of what homicide is and the concept of what and knowledge of what a child is, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, that's the, the details. Like I said, they depend on it, but that's not how I tell. I have to tell by intuiting other moral principles that I then apply. So perception might be, there are some cases where perception is not necessary. There's some cases where it's necessary, but not sufficient. It's all going to depend the, the, the range of evidence that's relevant is always going to depend on the character of the proposition being evaluated mm. um, for a mathematical proposition. Or like, for example, I used to do a lot of advanced logic and set theory, and we'd think about things like the axiom of choice. And, you know, you sit there and you think, um, you kind of, you just got to think about, it, you know. <laughs> and you, you can't, there's nowhere you can look at all to get help with the axiom of choice. 
you just have to do certain deductions. Or, you know, if I can, if I can do a truth tree on the corresponding conditional to modus ponens, well, I mean, I, maybe I got to use my Love eyes to trees. draw the lines, but that's not how I'm telling. You know, I could technically do that in my head if I had it, if I was smart enough. So anyway, so there's, I always like drawing it out. Curtis, did you have anything you wanted to get in here? I mean, I'm, I'm just, I honestly, I'm just soaking this up. I mean, this feels like I'm back in epistemology class. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting in an epistemology bath. It's great. I'm soaking. <laughs> yeah. Truth trees and okay. Logic. So this is what I got so far because I know I cut you off, Trent, and I know you're going somewhere, but I you just have to, to summarize. <laughs> you have, yeah, to. I just want to summarize. Okay. So we got a definition of knowledge, but you said def there's different kinds of definitions. And so you got to clarify what you mean by that. We're trying to get at the concept, the idea of knowledge, which is a non-accidental true belief. So it's non-accidental means that uh, gambling in Vegas, that doesn't count. If you hit the jackpot, you have a true belief. May, let's say that the gambling you're doing involves a belief of some kind, like you have to pick a number, for example. I, well, I don't know if it's a belief, but like, you, let's say that you do have a belief that certain number will win the lottery. And then it just turns out that, that well, that's true. And you did win the lottery. But it seems like that was accidental because you didn't have any evidence that that particular number would win. You just guessed. And so that, so you're saying that does not count as knowledge because that would be accidental. Right. So you're saying what you have is what you're, I think what you're saying is tell me if this is fair. You have a common sense understanding of what knowledge is. And you're trying to just put that in words that makes that, that captures as much common sense as possible. Is that fair? Yes, and that's because I'm okay. the grandson of Roderick Chisholm, and I'm <laughs> and I do a type of philosophy where where definitions are definitions are generalizations over cases, paradigm cases. So so I can actually even do with, do without definitions if I have enough paradigm cases. Where do you say I that? Can, where, where did where, Chisholm say that? He says it all over. Um, just an example. Uh, the, well, the I mean, the method is on display in his little book, Theory of Knowledge. Theory of Knowledge. Okay. Uh -huh. um, and in a book called Perceiving. Okay. Chisholm is spelled S C H I S O L M, right? H O L M, I believe. H O L M. Okay. Roderick. Roderick Chisholm yeah. is a key guy. Okay, cool. The, the key guy. Agreed. Agreed. Person and all the RFs, yeah. all of the RFs were were um influenced by him uh richard feldman my mentor richard fumerton one of my uh other mentors um oh. we call him the f-bomb because he's, he's at iowa right <laughs> he's at iowa and he's a fairly conservative canadian philosopher which is he's an absolute unicorn does he he's like guns does he have guns i i um, don't i can only assume so <laughs> if he's if he's canadian i have to ask yeah, well, no, he's but he's, he's in been, Iowa, so he's been in Iowa for a long time. Okay, so we got Feldman. I've Richard, met, Feld yeah, Richard, I've Feldman, met Feldman. Richard Fumerton and okay. Richard Foley, and they're all really great internalist 
um, essentially evidentialist, foundationalist epistemologists. And although there's a okay, lot you just, of different you just dropped like four technical terms right there: internalist, so we covered that one, evidentialist, uh, foundationalist, foundationalist, and another one, epistemologist. Well, in, yeah, internal. Yeah, so. So what's, a, what's epistemology? What because like a lot of people they don't have any. Tr it's not required to take epistemology. Do you think it should be required in college? Well, um, it's not required. People don't know what. what well, I don't think about. if you're if you're going to go to college, you might as well have it. And okay. um, and I mean, my problem, my hesitation there was I. I I don't know that college is the best place to learn it. I think you, you should just get the books by those guys and read them. <laughs> I don't college, get it. Oh, sorry. You know, Go ahead. It, I was just going to say, as it turns out, college isn't the best place to learn a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you have any examples, Curtis? Uh, <laughs> uh, common sense. Out, buddy? Uh, yeah, we, we can... <laughs> All those diet Dr. Pepper pet parties at Biola for your undergrad. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diet Dr. Pepper. Um, you stay out too late and you get a get a tattoo of uh, Psalm 91. Tramp, tramp. <laughs> oh, well, anyway. OK. Um, so. Uh, Trent, can you. Uh, tell us maybe an anecdote or something about how you got interested in philosophy and specifically, oh, yes, epistemo really specifically epistemology. How old were you? Well, to tell you the truth, um, lie to us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, it was in, um, it was honestly, I mean, in a sense it was in, it was in grade school. It was in, okay. it was very well, evident. By the, well, it was very evident. Um, in in grade school that I was very good at math um, and I did reflect upon why I liked math so much uh, over and against English and all that um, and um, I, I it was clear to me that in thinking about that one of the reasons was I could give I could do proofs um, now that doesn't mean proof doesn't mean that I'm certain of my conclusions it means that I have a method of determining an answer and that there, there was a verification procedure. And so I knew that that was a thing and that I was into that. And then my uh, sophomore year in high school, I transferred from the little tiny country school to the big city school. And I had a atheistic uh, professor or teacher who had a master's in psychology. And so this would have been this is in the 80s, and he was in his 50s at the time, 40s or 50s at the time. So he was steeped in logical positivism. So he saw that I was precocious and mathematically minded. And logical positivism is a flawed philosophy that was really popular at one time. Mm -hmm. Just, just letting Very, people yes, know. And I, yes, I actually, and you know, I actually have a, uh, a really nice explication of that in the recently released um cambridge history of uh philosophy volume that goes something like 1900 to 2015 or something or 1945 1945 to 2015 or something like that it's the it's the most recent edition of the cambridge history of philosophy 
And my chapter in philosophy of religion starts with a detailed analysis of uh, logical positivism. Go, go back to this guy. This guy was in his fifties. He was a, was he a logical positivist or? He, oh yes. He, just, he was oh. a hardcore. He was AJ Ayer and Bertrand in the Russell. 80s. Wow. wow. Okay. So he was yep. the last one. That's right. <laughs> well, but so, look, it's like a lot of these guys. When was he, he was upset that Reagan school, was president? Oh yes. He did not like that. <laughs> what a again. shocking correlation. Where's yeah. my glycerin tablets? Okay. So, <laughs> right. so I'm having a hard, I, I'm so shocked. So anyway, okay, so tell us this story. Did he have a huge impact on you? Did he, what? He did. He had a massive impact on me because he kept handing me books by A.J. Ayer, Bertrand Russell, um, Why I'm Not a Christian, um, in addition to Language, Truth, and Logic, all sorts of um, uh, philosophical essays, almost all hardcore atheists. Hmm. And and at the time, um, I, had, uh, I had just become an evangelical Christian. And so he was giving me all this stuff to try to challenge my faith. Um, and of course, a, I thought, you became a Christian from what? What were you before? Oh, nothing at all. I was oh, an okay. absolute, absolute pagan. <laughs> I, <laughs> I still am. Um, <laughs> with the, the, you know, it's it, a conversion. Celt? Conversion a is Celt? a process. Conversion yeah, is a process. That's right. that's and true. it has ups and downs, right? It has ups and downs. Um, yeah. But I, uh, yeah, so I was a young, born again Christian like very, very recently and started a, started a Bible study in the school and using, using a, a room after class that was empty and they banned us and it made the newspaper. I was in the newspaper at 16 um, for our Bible study getting banned from campus. So I was a oh, wow. early standard bearer and getting early banned. Active. Love it. That's right. So that, instead of turning you away from philosophy that drew you to philosophy how did yeah, that work? because how'd that work well because even though ultimately i think air is very obvious you know what's obvious is is relative to what you know at the time and how long you've looked at it. um you know even though i now see what's wrong with it at the time it was at least an intellectual challenge and i was like oh well this is this is really it scratched an itch right and so I also then I said, okay, well, who are the guys on the other side, right? That was my first question. Well, okay, not everybody's going to agree with this. And I had another teacher who also had his master's in the Talented and Gifted program. And he started giving me books by C.S. Lewis and other Christian philosophers and Peter Crave at the time. And that led me to actually reading Aquinas and, um, and getting into a bunch of Christian philosophers and getting into apologetics. And I bought a, like, I got um, uh, William Lane Craig's book, Introduction to Apologetics in 1988, um, maybe even 1986. It was, it was, it was, then it was published by Moody Press. It's now, it's now, I don't know who's published by now, but it now goes by the name Reasonable Faith. But this was essentially his big treatise with an analytic outline. And so I loved this dialectical process of uh, determining and evaluating arguments on both sides, comparing them together. And I loved it. I loved it. And the, I found that the stuff in Christian apologetics is way, way better than the stuff on the other side. And he gave me like, I can't remember when Dawkins's Selfish Gene was published, but I feel like it must have been in the, in the 80s because I think it was him who gave me that book. But if it wasn't that, it was something like that, some precursor to the new atheists. And I just thought, well, 
this stuff's kind of clever in a way, but it doesn't hold a candle to this other stuff that I'm reading. And so my faith was actually strengthened through that. And I thought, well, I want to go on and do the same thing. I want to write on this stuff. I want to, I want to pay it forward and write stuff that helps people figure this out and, and analyze stuff. And so that's what I did. One of the that's areas of philosophy is, oh, sorry, Curtis. No, just making comments. I saw your, yeah, I, I didn't want to. No, anytime, it was just great. Anytime Curtis is talking, I always shut up because I want, you know. <laughs> I don't talk much, but when I do, no, I'm just. No, you have total veto power. Anytime Curtis talks, I shut up. <laughs> go ahead. Go, go on with what you're doing. You call me a goat head? Jeez. I did. I did. I'm trying to be nice to you. Um, no, but uh, I was going to say, go back to the word epistemology, just so if someone is just a little intimidated by this, um, I would just say, don't be intimidated by Trent at all, because this is kind of, he, he's not, um, he, he, he wants you to learn and he wants you to be stretched and he wants you to give a, a give, give you a sense of how much is out there. But let's just categorize where we're, where we're at. We're in epistemology, which is in philosophy. Epistemology is the study of Well, it's usually called the the study of knowledge because episteme is a Greek Greek word for knowledge. But episteme has other meanings besides knowledge. It's a bit bit elastic there, but it's usually called that. But like all terms, what got you you into the, the study of knowledge? What got you into epistemology? How did you know? When did you come to the believe this is what I want to do? This is it. 1989. I was graduated high school. I, I graduated high school in 19. Well, I guess it would have been 1990 then. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I graduated high school in 1990 mm-hmm. and I went, I was, I went to Liberty university to study. Norm Geisler had made me his research assistant. No uh, way. And, Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He, okay. That's, the, a, that's the, cool. The associate pastor at my church had been his um, TA at Dallas seminary DTS, which is now I'm now I'm in Fort worth, not very far from DTS. And now I've had some of my own students go to DTS now. Um, but when, when my associate pastor was at DTS, he was Norm's um, uh, graduate assistant and also won the Norm Geiser Award for apologetics there. And so when he interacted with me, he's like, geez, there's this 17-year-old reading, um, you know, uh, Summa Contra Gentiles and reading Kierkegaard and, and Maritain and Thorsten Veblen and AJ Air and Bertrand, you know, I was just this, this he's like, let's get, so he brought in Norm for a, to give a presentation. And then we went out to, to have a pri- sort of a private thing together. And, and at, at that time on the spot, Norm offered me a research assistantship at, at his Liberty Center for Research and Scholarship. And I said, does this mean I get to go on reading? Yes, I'm in, you know? <laughs> so I, I went there and I was getting my books. It was before classes had started. And I actually was had signed up for classes with JP Moreland and between the time I registered and went, he left. Oh but, man. I'm so sorry. That's to hear a bummer. That. We had him that's on yesterday, <laughs> but Oh, did you really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I have the utmost respect for him in so many ways. Um, but most of all, because dude, scaling the secular city when I was in high school, you talk about oh, yeah. my copy of scaling the secular up. city. Only the Bible is marked up more. <laughs> um, and and also his book on um, science. What was that called? Christianity uh, and the Nature of Science. 
Yes, I absolutely love that book so much. Um, me too. Because again, it got me into the idea of methodology, right? Yes. It's not just it's not just you sort of ponder it, which is at least better than just taking it right. from the headline. Yeah. Um, but the idea that there was a method and a process, and that, and also the the revelation that the picture that I'd been given of the scientific method was just a toy, just a toy. Mm. Absolutely love. That's, but that's, that's most huge, of, right there. What you just said—that's so huge. I mean, that we could do a whole episode just on that, right there. Just on the method. Let's, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, because people need to hear. It. With should, now that yeah. science has, now that the left is, the progressive left is, has taken the science as it's actually science held hostage. What now was your they, quote again? You said it's a toy. Science foods they put on. You said it was a. Did you say toy? Uh, the method that you had been taught of science, the yeah, it's like a little, it's like it a little like toy a, model. It's toy like a little model. Yeah, that's good. that's good. That's really good. Because it's it's not like it's diametrically opposed to the truth. It's just it's papier mâché. You just poke it and it falls apart. Well, yeah, you know? we're, we're taught we're taught about the the scientific method the way they want it to be set, but we're never taught about the problem of the criterion. No behind it or or you know. or the or the demarcation problem exactly or the difference between forensic science and operational science and yes i mean it's just it's it's garbage the idea of uh, and, and it's usually paired with the fact value distinction or the fact opinion distinction it's, which it's, apparently can never be put together <laughs> no it's it's science education in grade school is absolute garbage yeah um and so so I really loved that book so much because it, it all rung true immediately because I knew there was something wrong with all that crap. But the thing that I most respect JP for is writing, writing the more recent book on, on his mental health issues. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, We're going to have him back on to, to have that. Talk about that, book. talk about that. I've, yeah. struggled, I've struggled with anxiety myself. And I, 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 that's, that's huge. That's a journey for me. Well, people have the absolute wrong ideas about it because um, I'm as confident as they come. <laughs> and pro probably too much so probably probably hubris and arrogance and egotism all rolled up in there but i have i mean i have medication for panic attacks mm -hmm. and and the way that i was taught about anxiety and you know panic was for you only panicked if you were weak and, and, yes. and lacking in confidence mm -hmm. and so it, it took so long for the right diagnoses to get done because i was so completely miseducated about the nature of anxiety and panic that's right. And, um, you know, you mentioned ahead of the time that I'm, I'm, uh, very extroverted and that's true, but, yeah. uh, but it, what goes along with that was I was also diagnosed bipolar by a psychiatrist, you know, are you, and again, uh, do you, do you struggle with, uh, what's the word? Gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, ADD. No, not at all. Oh, cool. So you can, I, well, I like don't even know what ADD laser. is, to be honest with you. I'm just using a word. Yeah. I don't know. No, but I, I have, I have, I focus like a laser. Focus like an absolute laser. That's a shocker. But, That's a yeah. shocker. But I, you know, the, the, you okay, know, so I was, JP left, go back to your story. JP left. Yeah. But, but the books that he had ordered for his classes in the fall still came in. Right. Oh, very oh. cool. Right. Okay. So someone I'm else was teaching through, that class. I believe it was taken over by. Unfortunately, I think it was taken over by a guy called Phil West, who kind of ruined it. But I, well, I don't want to swear to that. Um, uh, but I think so. Uh, w, Dave Beck was also there at the time. Gary Habermas, big influence on me. 
Um, but, uh, but, but the book that he had chosen for his course, which was, was the, at the time, brand new third edition of Chisholm's Theory of Knowledge. And, I'm, and so I'm in the philosophy class section of the section of the library that has books for classes, right? And I'm just, I'm just going through every one. I, I'm not looking for my class books. I'm just starting on the end and working my way down, getting books for like practically every class. And so hopefully they overstocked. Otherwise, I was poor kids were not going to get books of their classes. I so remember. I saw Theory of Knowledge. I saw it was in the Prentice Hall philosophy collection. Looked kind of cool. Yep. Put it in the bag, right? But and once I started reading that, holy cow, Chisholm just wow. absolutely drew me in and I loved it. And, 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 you know, and then it's kind of funny because from then there and then exactly 20 years later, I'm getting a PhD with one of Feldman's with one of uh, Chisholm's most, you know, hand chosen students, um, most tutored people, uh, Richard Feldman, and then hanging out with his other students. You know, like did Richard Feldman, did no. Feldman study under uh, Chisholm? He did not at so because uh, Chisholm was at UMass, but there was an exchange program between UMass and or sorry um, at Brown. There's an exchange program with UMass, and so so uh, Rich would drive to the airport, pick up Rod, drive him to his hotel, take care of him, take him to dinner, take him to class, be in an intense seminar with him, and was and went around with him everywhere. And, uh, and so he had all of this, you know, intense one-on-one -on -one time with Rod, not just the seminars in which the second edition was being written, but also in all that interstitial time where we all know the real philosophy happens. Yeah. But, um, but, but Rich and, and Earl are both uh, acknowledged in uh, either the second and or the third editions because they were students in the class when he was writing those books and he would come in and, Rich said he'd come in, he'd write up one of his one of his principles and then stand back and say, what do you think of that? <laughs> and these UMass students, you know, uh, they'd be like, you know, well, but isn't this an exception? He'd be like, OK, and here's my here's how I get around that. And they would just literally just, ha you know, just chisel them away at these principles yeah. the whole time. Did you ever meet Roderick Ch Chisholm? I did, unfortunately. Okay. Nope but I was surrounded by his people. I'm, I'm a Yumi. Everybody on my dissertation committee was a UMass grad. Oh, so they had all studied with um, Gettier as well. Oh, wow. So wow, you're like a, a grandchild of Gettier and, and, and Chisholm. Chisholm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, for those who don't know who Gettier is, uh he's probably like the most famous person uh relative uh, it disproport um <laughs> get your counterfactual reversibly proportional to what he wrote how many pages he wrote because he only wrote like what a napkin or something like he wrote like <laughs> three pages not even three pages i think it was on a napkin or something well it and... certainly the um the you know is justified true belief knowledge in 1963 was uh, came, I think in the published form came to like three pages. Yeah. And he didn't even want to write it. He was told he had to write something to get tenure. So he just like wrote it down. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny. But hanging out at UMass with his students and being taught by his students, definitely the guy was unbelievably sharp. Yeah. He had yeah. to be. Um, so he wasn't lazy. It was just like, 
Maybe he, he didn't had care. other hobbies. He had other hobbies. He had another well, he life. Liked, he liked all kinds of other philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Like Curtis said, get uh, uh, get your counterfactuals. I mean, he liked the whole panoply of philosophy. He even did moral philosophy. He just didn't want to be pinned down. And, and he was, you know, these guys back then, this was really before Publisher Parish. And they're like, what is this published crap? You know, yeah. well, I'll write, I'll write a big fat book once every five years and, and you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about publisher parish? Is that a good way Garbage. to run higher education? Tell us or, why. Tell, tell us why. Well, first of all, let me say, I say this as someone who did, you, did great at <laughs> You were good. You, it's not like you're angry because you never got published. No, you have no a ton sour of stuff. Grapes here. No sour. I had a top 10 journal publication in, in my master's. As, when I was working on, before I finished my first master's degree, I'd published in PPR, Philosophy and Phenomenological Research, one of the oldest and most prestigious journals with no revisions. If, it's just a code. It's just a code. And if you can crack the code, it's easy. It's so easy, it's boring. And you know, my, my list of publications is as long as my arm. So this is not sour grapes at all. But what it does is it does two things. It distracts people from depth work, okay? Keeps them scattered about doing, trying to get their quantity rather than their quality. And it, it, turn so much so much is produced that we have to have selection criteria that don't depend on quality so it becomes a popularity contest mm -hmm. okay so so it just becomes that's, that now they're that's now huge they're, what you just said yeah that's, so huge that's, what you just said so the popularity contest and who's going to win that people power who's going to win that who's going to win that for the yeah, most part power, power brokers you have to be you liked know? You have to be yeah. liked by a majority of people. And if there's sociologically, there's certain kind of people there and only those kind of people, mm -hmm. like with a certain political view, for example, yeah. who and are sensitive to any kind of subtle connection that what you're saying has anything to do with any kind of culture war or anything like that or political. Party. Woke. <laughs> Woke. Yeah. Um, no, so philosophy, philosophy is the most conservative discipline i've ever been involved in in that sense the least the most insular and the least open to new ideas because remember i studied theology i studied uh political science i've got i studied greek and latin classical languages um uh there's no there's no question the absolute most closed insular tightly guarded intellectual system i've ever encountered is contemporary academic philosophy wow I would love to, to trail on that, but I'm, I'm, I was writing still, I'm, I'm behind in my notes a little bit. Well, we uh, may which have, is to have fine. part two to this because I'm, yeah, may, yeah. Have, let me, let me just, against my limits. okay. So publisher parish is bad is what I was just writing because or, it prevents deep work. Well, it's, it's bad for education in terms of, so that's a, that's a nice thread that we could, we should really head out uh, can i can i just ask you what does it take to make it in as a professor professional professor of philosophy pre-trump or post-trump because it's it's absolutely different hmm. pre pre-trump you just had to know the right people and kiss the right asses um i was very good at that quite frankly because i am precocious i buy you know somewhat by luck um whose ass did you kiss 
you don't have to answer that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, you did kind of just walk right into that. By but yeah. okay, so pre-Trump or post-Trump, I, I, I love how honest you are. I love that you're so open about your struggles and your personal issues. It's refreshing to me. Uh, so many people are closed off. There's a lot of fear. I think there's a lot of um, falseness and I think it's because of fear, fear well, of losing and, and look, re reputation. Fear um, makes sense in a world of feeding of a social media feeding frenzies. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you got trial you by mob. That's trial right. By online mob. They, they, they have right. a right to fear. It makes perfect sense. Sure. But it's not good. It's not good no. for us because it prevents the, it prevents the truth from getting out. And over time, if the tr if the truth is involves something that's destructive to your culture, your civilization, over time, that can't be corrected. How do you correct it? We really thank you for uh, sharing everything that you've shared today, and I do believe that we need to have you back on to to, to chase down some of these other threads. And I know that you got to go, and we got to go, and we want to be respectful of your time, Doctor Doherty. Is that how you say your last name? You said it just right. Some in Scotland, it's Doctor Doherty. Oh, cool. But, but yes, Doherty. You're one of the few people to get it right. So, Doctor Doherty, PhD. Uh, we thank you for sharing what your knowledge, Curtis. You have anything else? You know, I just want to say briefly. I, I really appreciate you sharing the the process from from high school on. Really, we kind of got a little bit of a of an autobiography there of how you got to, into what you're doing because people who are going to be listening to this, they don't have, they haven't had the education we've had. They, they haven't, they haven't had the years in, in you know, behind them, pushing them through to some of the concepts and, and distinctions and, and insights that we're learning that you've shared with us today. Um, and they might just feel like they're drowning and overwhelmed, but yeah. it just starts yeah. with wonder. It just starts with wonder. Um, and curiosity. And that's how you started. And if somebody just now is coming into that discovery, they have, uh, th there's hope that they can get to where, you know, these conversations that we're at in, in a fairly short period of time was yep. just exploring their curiosity and wonder. And I Amen. think a lot of people are still wondering after if they've got all through this whole thing, I'm probably <laughs> still wondering, but hold on. He said, how do you know? How do you know? And I'm still not sure what the answer to that is. So maybe we can have you back on. I'd yeah. be delighted. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm going to stop recording.